Morning. I want to show you a picture of my new favorite Christmas ornament. Ready? So this is, okay, was uh, a, a, an ornament that was, uh, it says Christmas 2020, but the zeros are a mask and a roll of toilet paper, respectively, <laughs> if you can't tell. Now that in and of itself is funny. Now this was a gift to me. Uh, from one of our guys here at Chapel Rock, and in the hustle and bustle of getting out the door to come to church last Sunday, he knocked it off the counter, and it broke, <laughs> which kind of makes it even more perfect, right? Like, that's, that feels about right for this year. What a year, man. I, who would have thought, right? 51 Sundays ago, who would have thought that this would have been where we are now? I, I, it wouldn't have been my guess at all. I remember standing here 51 Sundays ago, and saying, welcome to the future, right? And, and we're going to do some experiments and try some new stuff this year. And God's like, you have no idea. You got that right, boy. What do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you think? You make fudge. That's what you do. You make fudge. Open your Bibles to Luke 2.25. Thank you so much for being here today. For those of you who are in the room, I'm grateful. For those of you watching online, thanks for logging in. And whether you're here in person or watching online, take a second, fill out your connection card. It's really important that we have your email, the right one that you use and look at regularly. Because in this kind of dispersed time, that's the best way we have to keep in touch with you about what's going on. You heard John mentioned earlier, uh, both our brother Greg and our sister Jenny have gone to be with the Lord. Uh, we're, the family, Jenny's family is going to do something this spring once they can all be together again. I do want to let you know that Greg's services uh, will be January 2nd, so this coming Saturday morning here at Chapel Rock with a visitation from 11 to 1 and then the service is at 1. So be aware of that. Keep those families uh, in your prayers this morning. Uh, we've been over the last month or so in a sermon series called Bethlehem's Bakery. And we've been looking at how the sweet treats of the Christmas season point to Jesus. Today, in, in the final message, we're talking about fudge. Now, some of you are wondering, well, if we're talking about fudge, why aren't you eating fudge? You've had one of the treats every other week. I have had enough treats to last me till Christmas 2024. Thank you. Like, this series has been great for my soul, but horrible for my weight. Because <laughs> Deb's just been baking it all. It's been awesome. Um... We're going to talk about fudge today, and here's why. Fudge was an accident. The reason we have it was a mistake. On Valentine's Day, 1886, a confectioner and chocolate maker in Baltimore, Maryland, was making a batch of French caramels and messed up. In the late 17th century, fudge was a verb meaning to fit together or adjust clumsily. And then around 1800, the word was used to mean a hoax or a cheat. By the mid-1800s, people were using the phrase, oh, fudge, as a kid-friendly expletive. And it was often used when something was messed up. And when this candy maker in Baltimore messed up their batch of French caramels, they fudged it and literally changed the meaning of the word. That they named that new treat that. And so after this Valentine's Day accident in the spring of 1886, this new confection called fudge was sold at a local Baltimore grocery store for 40 cents a pound. Any of you ever been to a vacation spot where they sell fudge for slightly more than that? 
Yeah. A letter found in the archives of Vassar College written by Emmeline uh, Battersby Hartridge proves that the story is true. In 1888, Miss Hartridge asked for the fudge recipe and made 30 pounds of it for the Vassar Senior Auction. And not surprisingly, it was an instant hit. People had never had that before. This is amazing, you know. The recipe made the rounds at many women's colleges in the early part of the 20th century and shortly after became one of the most uh, well-loved holiday treats and in vacation spots all over the world. And it's kind of been up and to the right for fudge ever since. It's kind of crazy to think that this delightful treat is due to a mistake. (laughs) Something bad happened, but it led to something good. Do you know anybody who specializes in taking something bad and turning it into something good? I do. See, what I want to tell you today is this. The story of Jesus is one where a really bad thing led to the best thing. A really bad thing led to the best thing. Here's what I want to do today. I want to just walk through our text. And we're going to kind of jiggle all the door handles and look under every rock. And then I want to offer three observations about that. And then I want you to hear a story that will illustrate it better than I ever could. All right? So let's just kind of walk through this. First, let me give you some background on the text. In our passage, Mary and Joseph are are taking the little baby Jesus, he's a week old, to the temple. All right? They're going to have him circumcised in, in accordance with Jewish law. They're going to present him to the Lord. That was normal. That was ordinary. That's what every Jewish family did for their firstborn son. You take him to the temple. You present him to the Lord as, as, an, as a way of saying, uh, recognizing that children are a gift from the Lord. That they're, His giving them to us is a result of his sovereign will in action. And, and so that was normal. They would offer a sacrifice of purification for the mother. They would circumcise the child. They would you know, kind of set him apart and say, this one, Lord, we're giving him back to you. All of this is ordinary. What's not ordinary is what happens next. Look with me at Luke 2.25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It's interesting that it calls him righteous and devout. The word righteous is the normal New Testament word for someone in a right relationship with God. The word devout indicates someone who's very, very careful. Simeon was intentional about his relationship with God. Now, in the next sermon series, we're going to do a sermon series in January and February called Back in the Rhythm. We're talking about the the rhythms of spiritual formation that that we we use to draw closer to God. And so we're going to lean more back into this idea of intentionality. But Simeon is the only one in the whole Bible who is called both righteous and devout. Nobody else has that designation in all of Scripture. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Now, that word court there is the outer court. It's not the inner temple. So this was the place that Gentiles could go. That's significant here in a little bit. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, circumcision and purification offerings, all that stuff, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. I want you to notice how fully present the Spirit of God is in this passage. The Holy Spirit is all over this thing, isn't he? Simeon has this insistent voice inside him. I don't know exactly how the presence of the Spirit worked before Pentecost. 
it is interesting to note the prepositions in the Bible. Because oftentimes it says that the Spirit came on, the Spirit came on, the Spirit came on, all the way up to the day of Pentecost, and then it's the Spirit is in. And there's the difference between the, the, the Christian faith and the Jewish faith. is Prior to the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, and Peter preaching the first gospel sermon, the Holy Spirit would come upon someone, and that's what we see here. So I don't know exactly how this worked. I know, I know the experience of the Spirit being in from personal experience. I don't know what this was like for Simeon, but he has this insistent voice, go to the temple courts. Go to the temple courts. You need to go to the courts. Okay. <laughs> he, remember, he's righteous and devout. He's in a right relationship with God, and he cares very deeply. He's very intentional about that relationship. And he goes, and he sees what he's been waiting for. He sees the Lord's Messiah, the Christ, the one who will deliver Israel and save them from their sins. We talked about that last Sunday. God told Simeon, you will see this one before you die. So we don't know that he's old, but the implication is that he's quite elderly at this point because of what he'll say, something, because of what he'll say here in a second. He didn't know that he was looking for a baby either. There's no indication that, that God told Simeon, you've got to look for a, a family with a little one. He didn't know. He just, all he heard is, at least what we know from the text, you will see the Messiah before you die. And so he goes into the courts and he's just available. And maybe that's a lesson for us here at the end of the year to just go to God and just say, okay, Lord, what do you, next year, what, I'm available, whatever you want. <laughs> In a righteous and devout position to just say, okay, God. And he goes into the courts and he's just waiting. And then he sees this couple. And I don't know how it worked, but the Holy Spirit says, them. There he is. He gets to see the consolation of Israel, verse 25 says. We tend to think of the word consolation as like a not a great thing, right? Maybe too many game shows when we were younger, right? The consolation prize. Oh, we have a lovely set of steak knives for you. You know, um, that's not the way Luke is using it here. The word means encouragement or, or comfort. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Here, Luke uses it to refer to the idea that Jesus is the one who will bring peace and wholeness to his people. And as Simeon sees this and the Spirit kind of is this dawning of recognition of who he's looking at, a song breaks out on his elderly lips. Look at verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. By the way, the phrase now dismiss in Latin is nunc dimittis, which is the title of a famous song based on this. You now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Where are they standing? temple courts where the Gentiles can go. That's the closest they could get to God. That's significant. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Now you can't see this in English, but the original language text uses a word that paints a picture. This picture is of a servant in complete and willing submission to his master. The master has placed the servant on watch duty. Keep a lookout, the servant is told, which they do intentionally with focus and devotion. And then, <clears throat> finally, after much effort and time, he sees what he's been looking for. 
He reports it to his master. He is released from duty. That's what is present in the phrase, you now dismiss. It's this idea that he's been faithful. He's done exactly what God asked him to do. And now he can go rest. And then having spoken words of joy, Simeon's big smile evaporates. Because God gives him a painfully piercing insight. Look at this, verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Along with the sweetness and joy of this moment, the joy of God stooping down and becoming human comes a bitter aftertaste. It's a recognition that what Simeon sings about with joy will also bring pain. That joy will be resisted and rejected by many. See, the text says that Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. That word is normally, it's, it's used a lot through the New Testament. It's often used in response to one of Jesus' miracles. It's the Greek word thaumadzo. It just sounds like you're impressed, right? Thaumadzo. Um, but it, it's, this is kind of an interesting usage. Luke doesn't use it very much um, this way as he's using it here. When you look at the other places where this use gets used in a similar way and form... The word means to be in wonder, to be amazed, which is kind of weird given what they already know about Jesus, right? The Mary and Joseph are not like shocked, like what? He's the Messiah? What? Like they're not surprised. Like an angel from God literally told them, this is the Messiah. Like, you know, Mary knows where he comes from. The idea behind this word is that it describes a positive reaction to the mighty power of God on display. The word marvel here describes a state of being both happily surprised and shockingly amazed at God's decisive action. And I want you to take note of the interesting placement, the the juxtaposition of the positive nature of the word marvel. And then just a few words later, he's talking about piercing someone's soul, right? Like, what is going on? In this prophetic moment, Simeon understands that there will be those who will accept Jesus as God's Messiah, who will bow before him and worship him as Lord and God in the flesh. And there will be those who reject him. There will be people on both sides, says Simeon. You do understand that Christmas divides the human race. You're either pro-Christmas or against it. There's no middle ground, theologically speaking. This splits people into two camps, or as Simeon images it here, it's like cutting them with a sword. Those who are for Jesus, his followers, his servants, and those who reject or even oppose him, it's one or the other. There is no third option. Now, here's something that, this is an an instance where the English Standard Translation is significantly better than the NIV. Because the NIV, the way that they they do the word order, it obscures something that I think is really significant in the original language. Um, There's a correspondence. There's a correlation between falling and Jesus being a sign that will be spoken against 
as well as rising and a sword piercing your own soul too. The phrase sword piercing your own soul is actually earlier in the text than the one where the way it's listed in the NIV. For some reason, they, you know, change the word order. But what this is, is, is an example of Hebrew parallelism, even in the Greek New Testament. This, you're supposed to see this correspondence. Falling, those who fall will be where Jesus is a sign who's spoken against. And those who rise is connected to a sword piercing your own soul too. What in the world does that mean? I'll tell you. What it means is that the sword that pierced Mary's heart, the death of her son, for her sins on the cross in her place, God used for good. God used that for good. And because he did that, it will cause the rising of many, even you and I. So what does this story teach us about what Jesus does to turn bad stuff into fudge? Three things. I think the text lays out three key actions that help us learn to make fudge, and they center around three words. I want all of you watching at home, here in the room, hold up three fingers. All right, ready? Get ready to do this. We're going to hold up three fingers. Number one, repeat after me. Listen. Listen. Number two, trust. Number three, remember. All right, three things. Listen, trust, remember. First thing's listen. Listen to the Spirit always, but especially when things don't go your way. We can see this in verse 25 through 27. Like Simeon, we need to listen to the Spirit when life doesn't go the way we think it will. You all got an experience with that lately? <laughs> it's like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. It's so important when life doesn't go the way you think to consistently be listening to God. Listening to the Spirit, having an ear open for that still small voice <laughs> that once the fire and the earthquake have passed, to listen. When, especially when things don't go your way, listen. Secondly, trust. Trust that God will work even when you can't see the end of it. This is so vital, church. I, you know, if you would have asked me <laughs> eight months ago, you think we're still going to be wearing masks at Christmas time? No, come on, we'll be past that. We'll long past that. <laughs> Sheesh. Even when you don't see the end of it, trust that God is at work. And thirdly, remember. Remember that God specializes in turning bad things into good things. We need to remember that our God is mighty. And while it is true that human beings can resist his will through sin and selfishness, it's only temporary. <laughs> Ultimately, God's will will be done. God specializes in taking mistakes and redeeming them and creating something wonderful. Do you want proof? Listen to this story. We have a story for you of hope and joy and blessings on a situation that wasn't very good at the time, but uh, has turned out awesome. 
So when Ken and I were dating at 17 and 18 years old, I became pregnant. And at the time, we figured we had three options. Um, option one was an abortion, which in my heart of hearts, I knew was not an option. Number Option two was to keep and raise the child. But we both felt at that time that we could not provide for him the way he deserved. And we wanted to use this situation to bless somebody else. So that left the third option, which was adoption. Um, it was a closed adoption, which means that I got to choose the parents. And I chose people that were unable to have children before. So over the years, um, we used that situation to minister to others that had fallen into the same type of journey. And that um, as time went by every year, we would celebrate between us and sing a little birthday song and happy birthday. And we would just prayed and hoped that uh, he was growing up well and that uh, healthy and just being a fine young man later on and that uh, someday uh, we would be able to get back together again. So here we are in 2020. What a year. Year of challenges and heartbreaks for us and for a lot of other people too. Um, but on December 4th, I um, woke up to a message from my cousin who um, told me that she had been interested in family history and family trees and genealogy since she was very young. And she had done her DNA on Ancestry.com. And she um, received a message from a gentleman named Kevin, who was in search of his birth mom. And he gave her my name. All he had was the maiden name. And asked if, he, if she knew me. And she said yes. But she had no idea how I wanted, would want to proceed. So she told him she would contact me and get back with him. And um, so I messaged her and we spoke that day and realized that it was um, a miracle that we, we connected and I did give her permission to give him my phone number. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I get home from work. We're having a discussion about this whole thing, what's transpiring in the texts and such. and. So we figured, well, it's 2020, let's put a little bit of our super sleuthing together <laughs> and see what we can find out on this guy. So off to Google, throw his name in there, nothing. Comes up dry, not a hit. So, well, there's more than one platform out there. So we go on LinkedIn and put his name in. Up pops this young man. My gosh, could be him. Looks like our other boys. <laughs> So, maybe. So I open his profile and start snooping around, and sure enough, his birthday is December 5th, which is, bam, we got a hit, okay? He looks like him. He was born on that same day. Um, so what's the next best thing to search somebody down? His Facebook. So we go onto Facebook, and we put his name in there, and sure enough, we find his page, the very first post on his page was a picture of the birth certificate with Anne's name on it and the discussion he had with her cousin. He took screenshots and put it out there and he was asking all his friends to help him find his birth mom. 
So then I commented on the post and he replied almost immediately. So at 6.30 that evening, he, my phone rang and I recognized the area code as Buffalo. Um, and so I answered it. And the very first thing that he said to me was, um, thank you for picking the parents that you did for. <clears throat> and that he'd been searching for me for 10 years. And because it was a close adoption, that's that he kind of come to a dead end. So earlier in 2020, um, the governor of New York State signed legislation that opened all the closed adoption records, which would allow the children who had been adopted to um, get a copy of their birth certificate. And so that birth certificate was the piece that finally allowed us to be brought back together. So here we are driving down the road, getting this conversations taking place. So I'm telling Anda, put him on speaker, put him on speaker. I want to hear what's going on. So she does. And uh, one of the first things she says to him is, uh, Kevin, I need to let you know that the guy sitting next to me driving is your birth dad. And there was a long pause. And he came back and said, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding me. He had figured that because we had him at such a young age that he would be able to find her. My name was not on the birth certificate at all and that it would take him another 10, 15 years before he would find me. Well, here we are on the day before his 43rd birthday, we are connecting up and he is learning um, that we are still together and that he has an older brother. Oh, I'm sorry, younger brother. <laughs> He's the oldest. Um, two younger brothers and a sister. So Saturday, his birthday, we made cupcakes and put a candle in them and had arranged to do another video chat with him. So we got on the phone and he showed us his gifts and then um, we said, hey, we have something for you. And so we brought the cupcake to the table and we were actually able to sing happy birthday to our son for the very first time. And so, um, so grateful and thankful that God has used this situation um, to allow us to, to be a blessing to other people and um, to use our situation to help others walk that same journey. So after 43 years, God has blessed us He's blessed us all with being able to be reunited, which is where we are now, up in Buffalo, meeting him and his family for, for the first time. And it just, God just has all these miracles all the time if you just stop and look at them. Some of them are really big, some of them are small. Um, but nonetheless, um, this one has hope, blessings, joy, and it's just, blows us away to see his his work and just his hand and everything so remember that god uses everything no matter what to to his glory and to his good happy, happy new, new year, year. sent me a message um, it was just like a couple weeks ago do you have a little time to talk I gotta tell you about a God thing I always got time for God things sure 
So she, we found a time that worked, and she called, and we're, I'm sitting there in my office, and, and I'm just like, oh, uh, Kleenexes aren't big enough. I need a towel. Um, holy cow. <laughs> Young couple, not married yet, has a baby, gives him up for adoption. 43 years later. By the way, that, there's a reason they're not here today. They're with their son right now. God can take stuff that's just messed up and do amazing things if you'll just surrender it to him. Listen, trust, remember. Listen to the Spirit always, especially when things don't go your way. Trust that God is at work even when you can't see the end of it. And remember that God specializes in turning bad into good. I think we can all agree that this year was not the one we wanted 51 Sundays ago. But that does not mean that God has not been at work. In fact, I think I can make a pretty compelling argument that God is going to use this hardship and pain to do something amazing. You know why? Because the story of Jesus is one where a really bad thing, the death of the only, the murder of the only innocent man who ever lived, led to the best thing, our redemption and forgiveness. And listen, if you've never appropriated that story for yourself by surrendering the ownership of your life to Jesus, by, by, by dying and resurrecting in the waters of baptism and living in discipleship to Jesus, then you are missing out on the best thing ever. It's even better than fudge. This year's been tough, but our God is tougher. And he can take the biggest mistakes you've ever made and redeem them if you will surrender them to him. And so we've got an opportunity to do that right now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And if you've never given your life to Jesus in repentance and baptism, I would invite you to come forward. I'm going to be down front. Fred's going to be down here ready for you to do that. Maybe this year has just been unspeakably difficult for you and need someone to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. You might want to just grab someone nearby, a friend or family member. Ask him to pray with you. Maybe you have another decision that you'd want to talk about. We're going to hang around after the service and, and we'd be happy to visit with you about that. I'm going to ask you to, just to set this time apart as the last Sunday of the year. I'm not going to make any promises about next year. <laughs> but I, I, will, I, will, I can break one. No matter what you've been through, God's going to use it to make you more like Jesus. I'm 100% certain of that. Would you pray that he does that now as we sing together this morning?